This is the Scott Thompson Show podcast. All right, we chatted a little bit about this last week. The first of the LRT meetings took place last night at Dr. John Perkins Center at the Gage Park stop. One of the biggest issues brought up. To talk more about all of this, Paul Johnson is with us, Director, LRT Project Coordination with the City, and with us now. Hello, Paul. How are you today? I'm doing fantastic, thanks. Thanks for taking the time to join us. Here we are in a new year. Man, you're just plowing right into this. Tell everybody what the purpose of these meetings are. So uh, the public will uh, remember in the fall, in September, we came out with the uh, first set of of designs that are part of the environmental assessment process we're going through. Uh, We were asking some specific questions because we had some design elements that, uh, quite frankly, there were options around. We wanted the public to give some feedback as well as a chance for them to give feedback on all elements of the design. And so this is our opportunity to uh, share the results of that, some of the things that have changed, and this is in anticipation of us bringing forward what's called the Environmental Project Report, which will go to uh, uh, the Council in um, late February, early March, and then get submitted into the government for approval. And just the last piece on this is, of course, we received approval in 2011. This is really the update given the changes that have occurred to our LRT design. So it's our chance to feed some things back, and you mentioned one off the top, which is there's a new stop that people are seeing with the design that uh, uh, on these three meetings, uh, which is, of course, a gauge stop that, uh, that the public was very clear uh, they wanted to see back in our design. So we've included that and, uh, you know, a few other things along the way, some additional pedestrian crossings and uh, uh, just a chance for people to get the update as to where we are. Uh, was the biggest concern or the biggest uh, talked about issue last night the gauge park stop? Uh, there was certainly a lot of, uh, given where we were in the east end of the city, a lot of uh, positive feedback about the Gage Park stop. Um, there are questions across all elements of this project. People are, of course, hearing a little bit more about the traffic uh, uh, pieces and uh, some people that are interested in cycling, wanting to make sure that we can, uh, you know, find some solutions for cycling along the routes where we may be uh, going back to a more original design of our roads that had uh, some extra lanes of traffic. And it's all about how we integrate cycling and traffic together on some of those roads, most specifically York Boulevard and Dundurn. Uh, Obviously, you're talking about going back to the original configuration and adding a lane of traffic. Uh, How do you solve the bike lane issue with that? We think there's lots of uh, ways we can. Uh, we don't want to speculate on what that might be. In fact, we'd rather get together with people who uh, who know this well, and that's the cycling community. We've got a great advisory committee here at the city and, of course, lots of great advocates in the community that can help us. The good thing about York Boulevard is that there's lots of space. And the other piece mm. is that there are other routes that we can... Uh, we can look at. So I think it can all be accommodated. Um, we just need to come up with those solutions. But we felt it was important to let people know that our traffic studies, we we always work with what's there. And we were hopeful that, uh, you know, this, this might actually work with the configuration as it exists today. But as you can imagine, uh, the amount of traffic that's on King Street that needs to be uh, uh, diverted off King Street because of the LRT, right. just in that very western section of King Street that's going to get pushed down to York Boulevard, we really need that extra westbound traffic lane for sure. All in all, these don't seem like bad issues. These don't think these are all solvable problems. No, Paul. They are solvable problems, and the other piece is that uh, they're very consistent with what we've learned before. Where you get slightly concerned is if you're uncovering all sorts of new issues that uh, that, that weren't there in 2010, 2011, when this first piece of work was done. Uh, very much uh, we're seeing the same kinds of issues, and 
uh, with solutions around them. And so we really want to get through this period because then, of course, we've got tons of other work that needs to be done, uh, not only with businesses along the route, but actually starting to get down into what's the construction schedule going to look like, what are some of those elements going to look like once shovels get in the ground. And, of course, Council's very concerned that uh, we turn our attention very quickly to um, uh, negotiating, which will take some time, but negotiating what the operating and maintenance agreement looks like for this project. What would you say the overall feeling of the meeting was, Paul? Was it positive? Was it negative? What's your feeling? So on the meeting itself, very positive. People felt there was good information. There was new information, uh, some updated information around that. Still, when you talk about LRT, it is uh, very similar to what we've seen in the past. There are people that that don't think this is the right project for Hamilton and lots of people that do. Um, And I'd say, you know, last time, I think it was about 55 uh, favorable, 45 not so favorable, the people who came. And I'd say last night was about the same. We had lots of people come in, congratulate us on where it is, excited about where it's going, and still had others come in last night and say that, uh, uh, you know, they're still actively uh, working to, to ensure this doesn't happen in the community. That's the reality of public conversation about it, so I think we stay there. But in terms of the information we're providing, people are uh, two things. They're, they're thankful for the information being there, but the other piece is that we have lots of people to answer questions, and so they were able to get some specific questions. I found personally last night more people came with really specific questions, maybe about a corner, maybe about a, a concern they had around an area or a stop, and we were able to provide them direct answers to that. So uh, I think people are looking at this material more, starting to get a real understanding of what this project looks like, and are coming with some very specific questions. At least that's what we heard from the 120 people that were there last night. Uh, obviously, uh, the gauge stop, we, you, you can certainly see the advantages of that. Um, are, how concerned are you that with too many stops, we're slowing it down? It almost seems kind of funny. Uh, at one time, nobody wants it, now everyone wants to stop. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, of course, the stop was in. We took it out in yeah. in, in terms of uh, keeping up that run time. I think what we heard from the public was uh, there's there's a fine balance between making sure this is rapid transit, which is what it is, and ensuring we have the right stops. And two reasons. One is the right stop from a community perspective close to a great city asset. But the other piece was the distance between the Scott Park stop and the Ottawa stop yeah. uh, really was seen to be too large. So in many ways, this is one that's being put back in. We also, as you know, have a little bit of technical work ongoing. Uh, we're going to report back to the LRT subcommittee at the end of the month around a Bay Street stop, which was another one that was put forward. We simply didn't have the time to a- analyze that prior to this round of public meetings, but uh, we'll be looking at that as well. We're well within the wheelhouse. This is fine. Uh, you know, the original design had, uh, through this section, about 15 stops east to west. We're at 14 stops. We're fine. I've always said the problem would have been if people wanted 25, 30 stops because yeah. then it's no longer rapid transit. Exactly. So the Bay Street stop still on the table then? Still is. Uh, you know, the technical realities of utility work, property impact, all those types of things take time. Uh, we will, though, have uh, an update for our LRT subcommittee, which I uh, believe is uh, January 30th. Uh, the other question, and this came out last week, was the James Street Spur Line down to go. What's the dealio on that? Well, we're waiting for the province to uh, uh, to, to to announce that. We, of course, would have uh, really loved to have that information available for people as we go through this round. We'll have to uh, adjust our communications around that when we hear from the province. Um, but this all started in October. Uh, there was a desire for uh, uh, from our city council expressed that... Uh, that I reach out to Metrolinx and talk a little bit about how the A-line could actually be developed uh, as a longer uh, route, 
uh, in the same time frame as the B line. And so, uh, you know, everybody's always wanted to get us from the airport to the harbor and do it in a rapid transit way. It's part of our blast network. I think that's probably what the province is looking like. Obviously, they've got the technical information that we've done in terms of looking at that route. So uh, we'll all have to wait and, and see what that, that's a provincial announcement that's coming. The good news is we hear it's coming very soon. Uh, certainly that's what the mayor's been saying. And uh, then once we, that happens, we'll, we'll move on. But it doesn't slow us down on the overall project uh, one iota. Uh, this would simply be uh, a piece. That, that spur line was always separate. So it doesn't interline, as we say, or connect in with the east-west route. You would have had to tra- change trains. So if there's a different approach on the A line, it uh, doesn't hurt us in what we're doing from the B line, the east-west perspective. Obviously, uh, the whole uh, idea behind this was to connect the system to go, uh, and, and that was, I understand, a condition, you know, of receiving the money was that it does connect connect with the spur line to go. What do you think the alternatives are? Will it still connect to go? Oh, there! I can't imagine the province would abandon that. Of course, I don't know for sure what it'll be, but I can't imagine it. Uh, you know, the A-line, the north-south piece, would always connect in with GO as well. If it's going to the harbor, if it's going up to the airport, it would do so in a fashion that would connect in both our GO stations. So there is a, there's certainly no deviation from that desire. This is a system that's a local system that does need to connect into the regional system through the GO train and GO bus service. So I think we're, um, we're still looking at that. Um, you know, the original ideas around the A-line piece for, for Hamilton have, uh, have really probably been more focused on a bus rapid transit system, which is still rapid transit, still segregated in many ways and, and all the rest. But it allows us to, uh, I think it's close to 20 kilometers, actually, if you do it all the way from the harbor up to the airport. So those are the kinds of things that the city's been looking at. And then we'll, we'll wait and see what the province has to say. Uh, but obviously you're hoping to get a rail-to-rail uh, connection here. Is that correct? Is that what we're still hoping for? And, and what about going up to the old station on Hunter Street? Uh, in terms of the connection to Hunter Street, that's always been a pedestrian connection. Uh, the reality is it's so close to where the stop will be at James and in the Gore Park area that, uh, uh, that we're going to just do an enhanced uh, a bit of wayfinding and streetscaping in order to get people to the Hunter Street GO station. The, uh, the North GO station, a little bit different because uh, it's a little further away from the center of the city. What we want is a great connection to regional transit. Uh, we want rapid transit. But the two-kilometer spur, of course, doesn't have a ton of ridership in and of itself because not a lot of people are just taking that short little trip. So uh, if there's a way that uh, perhaps we can get more ridership across a longer stretch of that A-line, that uh, that would help us out as well. But how would uh, you have any information on ridership down James when the LRT is not built and no one's doing the run? I mean, won't, once the LRT is in, won't that then provide the need to get down to go? Or Yeah, uh, you know, the reality is that... Uh, it's not a train, it's not a system where the trains uh, run all day there. Yeah. Uh, we do have buses that go up, James, so we do have some ridership information from a bus perspective. But you're, you're quite right. I mean, things will in, improve. I mean, right now, it's not a, you know, ridership is very low, but we've got lots of great stuff happening in terms of the West Harbor redevelopment that's occurring with, with literally thousands of units of new housing that's going to be down there. Um, so there are lots of things that are going to occur over time. There needs to be a strong connection down to our harbor, how that works and what tech technology that works with, uh, uh, you know, that remains to be seen in the next couple of weeks. And if we're adjusting, we're adjusting. If we're not adjusting, then we'll continue on. Did they, did they give reasons as to why they don't want to do the spur line down to the go? Is it cost? 
no, it's not related to you know the cost of the envelope. Uh, we still felt was uh, was certainly uh, able to accomplish all that we were accom- wanting to accomplish. Uh, you know, I think uh, you know one thing is uh, you know if council is really interested in making sure that a line, the whole a line, so the airport to the harbor, yeah. is built on an aggressive time frame. This may be one way to do that instead of waiting for another round and another round of applications. Is there a way to do this in a faster way? So I think it's responding to council's desires and also making sure that we actually get the best bang for our transit buck uh, in terms of how we move people along that corridor. When do you hope to have more information for the, from the province on this? Uh, <laughs> Tongue-in-cheek, I say to our provincial partners, it would have been really helpful to have that yesterday. Yeah, <laughs> so, I can so imagine. Quite, frank, quite frankly, we can't uh, get that information soon enough. As I say, there's lots that keeps us busy. This isn't slowing us down per se. But um, I think more uh, from, you know, your questions and the questions, obviously, we got last night is we want to make sure that we're providing as, as clear an answer to the public as possible. And so the more clarity we can provide, the better. Uh, the answer of uh, we're waiting and seeing is, uh, you know, something we have this opportunity over these next few days. We'll have to figure out another way to communicate with the public about uh, how this uh, affects the project overall. Uh, were people or how concerned were people uh, regard the spur, regarding the spur line and the James Street connection? How much... Was that a was that a relevant point last night? Uh, questions about it. People were saying, "Hey, maybe you've got uh, some information you weren't sharing with the press, or something like that," which wasn't the case. But uh, actually, some positive reviews. People were saying, "Boy, it'd be fantastic if we could actually link the airport uh, and the, and and uh, more importantly, everything between the airport and the harbor, which is uh, which is a, a large volume of people and businesses that are on our mountain." And uh, so, a lot of people were saying, "Hey, that kind of makes sense." There was a lot of, you know, early on, a lot of questions about why that little spur piece, because it's not very long. It's, uh, you know, it's only in one direction north, and and uh, uh, the trains would move north and south, but it's only going that north piece. It doesn't right. go up the mountain. So I think people were uh, were actually not upset by the concept. There just was a lot of, uh, we'd really like to hear the details about how this can work. And some people saying, you know, can this can this all happen at the same time and the same timing? Because it would be great if, if A and B, if that's exactly where we're headed, could be there by 2024 together. Hmm. Paul Johnson is with us, Director, LRT, Project Coordination with the City. Paul, as always, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Good luck. Thank you very much. Bye-bye. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. All right, the search for Malaysian flight MH370 has been suspended after nearly three years. Hard to believe it's been that long since this airliner uh, has disappeared. To talk more about all of this, Robert J. Kokonis is with us, President and Managing Director of AirTrav Incorporated. They are an, an aviation advisory firm and is with us now. Hello, Robert. How are you today? I'm very good. Uh, yourself? Good. Thank you for taking the time to join us. I appreciate this. Uh, boy, it's hard to believe this plane has disappeared uh, nearly three years ago and without a trace. What is your thoughts on that? Did you not think that somehow, somewhere, something would turn up? Well, I mean, first of all, without a trace, there has been pieces of the aircraft and passenger belongings found primarily in the the, uh, western part of the Indian Ocean, the Maldives, Madagascar, Mauritius. We've had a wing flap show up. We've had... uh, We've had bits of passenger baggage show up, but the specific aircraft, you're right. Uh, no, uh, does it surprise me? It doesn't. I mean, it's a vast expanse of ocean. The technology is not there today to have a black box, for example, continually pinging uh, its location. And a lot of the initial, the initial search area was based upon some guesstimates of the last contact between the aircraft and satellite navigation. 
Are you surprised? Why isn't the technology there? I mean, you know, you've, you've got, I guess, 30 days if it, you know, to retrieve a certain boxes, information, this sort of thing. It seems hard to believe that what we know technologically today that we can't find a plane. Well, we have great technologies out there. In fact, we've got a Made in Canada solution. There's a, a Calgary-based company, uh, Flight Aerospace, which, for example, makes a, a black box streaming technology so that the minute there's a problem on an aircraft, it would start to send back to a home base via satellite, you know, what's going on with this airplane. It may not give the last specific, very pinpoint location, but we'd have a pretty darn good idea relative to this current search as to where the aircraft was. But, of course, for a lot of airlines, it comes down to uh, money. And uh, I think the International Civil Aviation Organization, based in Montreal, is is working with airlines and with uh, technology vendors to find a, a common platform or solution. But as far as, again, you know, a black box that was still ping after or some flight recorder pinging after three years. I, I just don't see that. I think it's more closer to the time of the event and the incident. We want to be able to narrow down where is that aircraft. What is the cost per plane? Any idea to outfit, you know, every plane with something like that? Uh, you know, the, the technologies are all so different. I mean, it's not it's not huge. I mean, what I you know, say to a lot of a lot of uh, airlines, the cost of this type of incident, of course, this particular search is now uh, in excess of 160 American dollars, split sort of between Australia, China, and uh, and, and Malaysia. 160 million. 160 yeah. million dollars, and you know, but part of this technology can also be used uh, to improve airline fuel efficiency. So, but as often as the case, until an incident happens, you know, it's it's sort of a, a, a rear guard looking vision versus how do we look proactively into the future. Airlines have a, you know, it's a tough business to make money at, so airlines are always trying to, you know, minimize uh, any ancillary or additional add-on technology that may not be deemed to be needed in 99.99% of the times. Uh, you talked about the cost of this search, uh, already $160 million. At what point do you make the call to stop searching? How do you do that? Well, they made the call, and part of the challenge is back to this wide search area, this, this broad arc of ocean uh, about 1,800 kilometers off the uh, west coast of Australia. And they searched, uh, the initial search area was 120,000 square kilometers. Now, interesting, back in December, the Australian uh, Transportation Safety Board issued a report and part of the report uh, pointed towards potentially an additional 25,000 square kilometer chunk of ocean further north than the than the current search area, and that uh, recommendation was based upon in, in a research uh, institute in Australia, uh, the Commonwealth, uh, the Commonwealth uh, uh, Research Institute, that looked at drift analysis. You know, where could based upon ocean currents, where could things end up. And unfortunately, the three countries have decided, again, Malaysia, China, and Australia, that unless there was pinpoint evidence of where uh, the aircraft could be beyond the initial search area, they just wouldn't, uh, wouldn't uh, go there. So uh, that's where it stands. And I think, you know, $160 million is a lot of families, understandably, that uh, are still grieving because they just don't have closure. Do the pieces that were found, do they tell us anything? Uh, well, I mean, I, the only thing that's shown so far is that the aircraft likely did not break up uh, uh, midair. It, it likely broke up when it impacted the uh, uh, impacted the ocean. But beyond that, you know, there, there's there's been no reported uh, evidence of explosive traces. Again, which would have caused the aircraft to break up uh, midair. 
um, or any other sufficient pieces of fuselage or engine to point towards any any uh, uh, automation or technology issue with the actual performance of the aircraft. Surprised we haven't found more pieces. Well, for surprise, there's a couple of independent search groups out there that just haven't trusted the the uh, the focus of the of the of the current search uh, uh, team left, led by Australia, and they're the ones that have you know combed beaches in the Western Indian Ocean again, Madagascar, Mauritius, and found you know there's a, a couple of photos of uh, actually a fairly good amount of uh, baggage and whatnot there. But again, just because you're seeing a baggage washing up off the west. Uh, uh, the east coast of Africa it doesn't necessarily mean that's where the aircraft is. is based upon drift occurrence. Right. Um, so that's again, it's an unfortunate story. I, the 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 base the research base in Australia is the Commonwealth Scientific and Industrial Research Organization, an independent research think tank, and they're the ones again that did a very comprehensive tracking of ocean currents and said this is where we think possibly if you were to extend the search, this is where you ought to be looking. And that again was in the Australian Transport Safety Board re- report. Uh, but the three national governments have elected not to pursue at this point. Is it possible, you know, a year from now, two years from now, that uh, by some miracle there's a military ship in a certain area doing some sonar testing and, and might find it? That's possible. I, I think there still is a, a possibility we may find it, but we could be talking in, uh, uh, somewhere between, you know, four and ten years. And every time you have a certain grid to search, after you finish that grid and come up empty-handed, it's obviously, I guess, easy to determine what the next one would be. And then that would continue, then that would continue. So right. this could be never-ending, correct? Right, that, that's correct. And by the way, one of, there's actually one upside of all the searching. Great part, a great deal of this ocean uh, area being researched has never been mapped before. The floor of the ocean mm. has never been mapped. So, you know, if you have to look for a bright side, that might be it as far as furthering scientific research and understanding oceanography. But uh, for the families, again, it's, uh, it's a tough, uh, bitter pill to swallow. In your opinion, has the search been efficient? Well, there are, there's various groups, again, that have called into question the effectiveness of some of the groups that are supporting the search and, and where they were searching. But again, as, a, as of the top of the segment, as you asked me, I mean, you know, how, you know, was it the right area to search in? It, 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 because this has never happened before right. where you have an aircraft that takes off and changes course. And, and the odd thing as well is that, this, is that this aircraft went past at least four military uh, air traffic control regions and without a trace. Now, supposedly somebody in the cockpit, one of the pilots, switched off the, the transponder, but you can still have physical, you know, radar at least, even have a blip of an unidentified object, and the fact that there is no response <clears throat> from any of these four military facilities is it just adds to the mystery. Hmm. Do you think they will find it eventually? Yeah, as I mentioned, I, I believe they will. There was a there was an incident with a uh, a, a, a flight between uh, I think Australia and South Africa uh, many years ago, a Boeing 747 jumbo jet, and. Uh, and it did crash and, and sank to the, the bottom of the Indian Ocean, and it was several years on that they finally found it. So I believe they eventually will, but as I mentioned, it could be a matter of uh, you know upwards of 10 years, and it may uh, be found simply by luck, some other ship looking for something else or mapping, continuing to map the sea, uh, the sea floor in an area we didn't expect possibly MH370 be, to be located, and that, I'm sure, will be what happens. How much is this a topic of discussion in the aviation industry? Well, it's talked about. I mean, obviously, people want to understand structurally or engineering-wise, was there anything you know, wrong with this aircraft just because the 
Boeing 777 aircraft is the backbone of a lot of the world's uh, long-haul you know, fleets. Air Canada, for example, flies a number of these aircraft. Mm-hmm. So we, we want to know, um, but it's much more a topical conversation in Southeast Asia, again, because of all the families that have uh, been standing by and waiting uh, during this process. What do you think happened? Boy, that's a tough one because... You know, there's a lot of speculation that the captain who uh, they did actually search his home and he had a home flight simulator and there was evidence that he had been, you know, practicing trying to take this aircraft to the to the furthest extent of the Indian Ocean and, uh, you know, did he have some psychological problems? It's hard to say. I know that that the finger is always easy to point towards. That, you know, was a pilot error? Was it uh, was it intentional? malicious intent? So, for example, that Eurowings Airbus 320 that was put into the Alps. Uh, two years ago, the right. pilot was suffering mental uh, mental illness. But uh, my experience with aircraft incidents is usually a cascading series of events, and I just really like to hold short of pointing towards a pilot or a structural or something else altogether until we know uh, for sure. So, you know, the only good thing I can say out of this uh, again is is that you know the uh, the, the incidences, you know, air, commercial aviation is an exceptionally safe. Uh, mode of travel. We have thousands of flights in the uh, air every day, uh, globally and uh, and uh, and annually. The the vast vast majority of these aircraft uh, operate with no problem. 2016 was one of the safest years in aviation history. Uh, is there anything without an aircraft and and without knowing the cause or any of th- any of the things you're talking about that that experts want to know, Robert? Is there anything to be learned from this? Is there, has there been any change in protocol as a result of this situation? Well, I can't speak for the military side of the equation in terms of uh, you know, air traffic control tracking stations and protocols. Um, but again, back to the fact that this aircraft. Uh, vanished without a trace, and I mentioned this black box streaming technology of at least one Canadian vendor, and there are other solutions out there. There's another solution, for example, has talked about a uh, an ejection system that if an aircraft was going to go down, that the black boxes would be ejected out for the aircraft and would have you know much more easy to uh, much easier to locate these black boxes. And again, for the, the listeners, there's two quote unquote black boxes. They're actually colored orange. Uh, one is uh, for data from the aircraft systems engines and the other is the cockpit voice recorder mm-hmm. um, so that's another technology so that that has been a lot of the discussion since the incident and again the International Civil Aviation Organization has has had a steering group has organized meetings of, of all the world's carriers to talk about what is a practical and pragmatic uh, solution to make sure this doesn't happen again but we're, we're still talking so what is the law as it stands right now as far as commercial aviation? But All planes have to have both of these types of boxes on the plane? For right? sure, yeah. You have to have them both on board, and, and they're looking for the two. For example, there's that uh, uh, Turkish uh, jumbo jet cargo airliner that crashed in Kyrgyzstan in Central Asia yeah. uh, yesterday. And they're you know, quoting the wreckage looking for those two boxes. So that is that is the law. You must have uh, black boxes in any, any commercial uh, aircraft, whether it's a small, uh, you know, uh, propeller aircraft, um, or whether it's a, um, a double-decker Airbus 380, must be in place, and even military aircraft must have uh, a black box. Because the whole objective of any incident, uh, as tragic as it might might be, is to avert uh, a future incident. So this is back to again black box tracking technology. We need to have a better usage of, of what we have today and uh, new developments. 
So how trackable are they? Uh, and, and they 30 days. 30 days in the water? 30, 30 days, correct. That's the approximate, give or take a couple of days. It might go for 40 days. Um, you know, just the general guidance is, uh, is 30 days. And then, of course, you know, was the, was the, the black boxes, were they, uh, did they survive the impact? And uh, black boxes are designed uh, with the special metals to be, uh, you know, have, have a very high degree of tolerance to impact. And they're also placed in parts of the aircraft structure, <coughs> usually towards the tail, which, again, are deemed to be, have a, a high, higher likelihood of surviving an impact. Um, so that that's how the technology works. Uh, so where do you think this uh, will go now in regard to uh, flight MH370? Do you think there will be a need or an appetite to raise private funding for this, or do you think until somebody stumbles upon something, this is just going to remain a cold case? Uh, could, could be private funding. Uh, you know, there may be behind the scenes, uh, you know, continued lobbying by various uh, you know, the families, groups, uh, various governments to keep going at it, they, even as a minimum perhaps to search uh, that new 25,000 square kilometer area to the north of the current search zone and, and perhaps give that a shot as a, I don't know if you call it a Hail Mary pass. I mean, the entire Indian Ocean could be a Hail Mary pass, but mm. uh, I think at least the area that did search based upon the known, uh, the, no, the, the last ping between the, all aircraft will send a, uh, a ping on a, on a certain, every once an hour, every half an hour, I can't recall the specific the time interval, to a, a satellite that will sort of record the location. And, uh, and, and that technology is there by default. For example, Boeing has a Boeing aircraft health system that airlines can subscribe to for additional maintenance and fuel efficiency uh, support. But if an airline doesn't, uh, doesn't subscribe to that uh, uh, additional package, that that box is already in there, will still ping by default to a satellite. So based upon the last ping received by the satellite from the aircraft, they then establish okay, where the aircraft was, how far could it fly based upon its known fuel reserves and winds at the time. And that's how they more or less inscribe this arc in the south, uh, the southeastern uh, and south-central uh, Indian Ocean. If they did find it, considering where it is um, and how difficult it has been to find, is there anything they could draw conclusively from the wreckage still? The fact that it's been in the water so long, um, you know, would it still, is there a chance that it still could be in relatively large pieces? Uh, what could you hope to extract if they do find it? Well, I mean, you know, it's possible that the uh, the flight uh, the flight recorders, the data recorder, and the, the cockpit voice recorder could still be intact. For example, don't forget they did find a recorder uh, data recorders off of Air France 447 that crashed uh, en route between Brazil and uh, Paris, France, mm -hmm. and that was after uh, several months. So that could yield evidence if they uh, they couldn't find the boxes but found uh, big chunks of wreckage, they could probably. Determine again, conclusively determine it wasn't an in uh, a midair uh, explosion or, or a breakup of the aircraft. Uh, I mean, I, I said explosion erroneously because it may not have been an explosion. If it broke up in flight, it could be a, a mechanical uh, pressurization issue. Mm -hmm. um, but you know, failing that, failing getting uh, especially especially the cockpit voice recorder, um, it, it may be very very difficult to say conclusively what happened. Now, the data recorder could show the certain uh, certain instruments, for example, again, the, the transponder, which sends, think about your ETR-407 transponder, right? It's an right. electronic 
communication. That w- that's what identifies, you know, an, an aircraft over Hamilton Airport right now. I can I can hover over it on a website, and or the air traffic control uh, uh, people can see which aircraft it is, what altitude, uh, what speed, what direction, all that kind of stuff. And you would turn off that uh, it sort of de-identifies the flight number of the aircraft, but again, the aircraft should still be picked up by right. by air traffic control. So. Uh, uh, again, we, we hope we could find something out, but until we know what we, we, we've got in, on our hands as far as what we can find, if we find it, it'll still remain a mystery. Robert Kokonis has been with us, President and Managed Director of AirTrab Incorporated, an aviation advisory term. Fascinating. Robert, thanks for the time and insight. Much appreciated. You're quite welcome. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. Interesting article in the Financial Post today. Uh, Trudeau's Liberals just got struck by the first shot in Canada's carbon tax rebellion. People are starting to get upset about this. Not because they don't want to save the planet. It's not a this or that thing. It's that for some parties, it seems to be a form of fundraiser. And we certainly heard what happened in Peterborough during his uh, uh, Timmy tour when a lady spoke up, a mother of four, single parent, trying to raise her kids, and her hydro or electricity bill is killing her. And now cap-and-trade is coming, to which he quickly pointed out that, hey, not my problem, man, that's your premier. I got nothing to do with your electricity. And sort of blew off the whole cap-and-trade thing, which was her point. I'm sure she realized it's a provincial thing. The point was, now you're adding cap-and-trade. So he basically gave her an elite brush-off to a common man problem. And this is starting to resonate. He also said in this speech, till we wean ourselves off the the oil sands, to which the people in Alberta, including Premier Rachel Notley, said, we're not going anywhere. So these are very much first-world problems. And it's got to the point now where these problems are bigger than health care, They're bigger than educational issues. They're bigger than jobs and creation of jobs and and improving the economy. We're talking about this more than anything. Which seems odd. And now it's got to the point where there's uh, an interesting uh, Ipso Global uh, news poll that was done. And it says less than a third of Canadians... Millennials specifically think their lives will be better than their parents were. Less than a third of millennials think their lives will be better than their parents were. Only 27% of Canadian millennials say their generation will have a better life than their parents. Compared to 42% of respondents aged 50 to 64. So, uh, Sean Simpson, vice president of public affairs for Ipsos, uh, attributes the generational spit, uh, split to what he dubs our new post-Great Recession reality. We're no longer seeing 3-plus percent growth every year. There's no longer a job for everybody who comes out of university with an undergraduate degree, and housing prices are rising faster than incomes are. I think this is stunning because I remember being a kid and thinking... I'm looking at what my parents have. I'm looking at what my grandparents have. I'm looking about, you know, what their parents had before them. You know, my mother was an immigrant, came over here with like a suitcase, as many of your families did at one point. So uh, has that come to a grinding halt? 
Is it now a case of preserving that big pile of sugar as opposed to adding to it? To talk more about all of this, Theo Sellis, registered family therapist, president of Integrity Works. He is with us now. Hello, Theo. How are you today? Doing well. How are you? I'm doing very well. Thanks for taking the time to join us. You obviously teach. You work with lots of millennials, or uh, you know, uh, teach lots of millennials, rather. 27% think they will not have a better life or will have a better life than what their parents did. Uh, what are your thoughts on that? I think it really depends on how we define what is a better life. Uh, oh, you know, now you're splitting the atom. <laughs> I never thought of that but one. That's why you call me Scott. Sheesh. Now you're going to take us down another road. What is I a good am. life? Oh, okay, you might be rich. You might have two cars and a big screen TV, but are you truly happy? Well, that is part of the question. We have. There is no doubt that financial security, uh, being able to have a roof over your head, all these things are required. We need to have those things. That's absolutely true. And if you just define uh, worth or value of life or the importance of life by being able to have more than someone else had before you, continuing on that path of having more and topping up more, then there is no doubt that, um, economically speaking, this population is going to have less than the, uh, its predecessors. Uh, but there are certainly different ways of looking at health, well-being, worthwhile life, better off than just economics. Not that economics are not important. Like I said, bottom line, if they are, but there's other ways of looking at life and whether or not you are as well off as people before you. So they may not much have much money, but they'll have a hell of a lot of fun. Is that what you're telling well, us? Well, we don't know that necessarily. You do need a certain amount of money. But, um, you know, it, it's interesting. I was thinking a lot about this, this particular article, and I thought about how we generally define the health of the country, and typically that has been with GDP. Uh, but we are also moving towards uh, looking at well-being beyond just that and looking at, for instance, uh, United Nations Happiness Index, where you look at countries and they uh, interview people in like, different countries to score them on happiness index beyond just GDP, which, which certainly is a part of it. There's a, it's one of the main variables that it'll affect. Look at, they also look at factors like the amount of social support that people have, the amount of personal freedom that they have in order to make choices in their life the experience of how much generosity they encounter in their life, uh, whether or not they feel that there's a certain amount of corruption in business or government, sort of their own psychological health and well-being. All these factors uh, can contribute to whether or not you are well off besides just how much money you have. And so um, there's no doubt that if we keep going down this path, and I'm not saying it's a great path to go, I think we still really need to look at health distribution, and people are certainly being more and more aware of the difference between the 1% and the rest of us. Those are really important conversations to have. But at the same time, there are going to be some societal changes that may not necessarily lead you being worse off other than just possibly financially, right? Like, are millennials viewing it that way, though, Theo? Or are millennials saying, you know what, I don't want that. I'm just going to be happy. Well, I'll tell you, I'll tell you that. One thing, for instance, that's very different between millennials and uh, people of our hoary old age uh, when we were younger is that, uh, for instance, uh, it's not a big deal whether or not they own a car. They couldn't care less, generally speaking, mm -hmm. about cars, having a car, having the car. They go, we'll just take transit. It doesn't make, make difference. Or we'll just Uber it. it doesn't, that doesn't matter to us. That's not a big deal. So I suspect, suspect that might end up being the same thing with having your own home. It may not be the end-all, be-all as it used to be. Having, you must... You know, here's the typical lifespan thing. You know, you, you're a baby, your parents take care of you, and eventually you go through that path of increasing dependence. And at a certain age, you have to go off, and you have to have a mortgage and have your own house by yourself, 
at your own kids and start that cycle all over again. They, that may not be the case anymore. Uh, that's not necessarily the case in a lot of countries. Um, and it may have some benefits. We're going to have more and more multi-generational homes. Is, is home ownership a North American thing? I mean, you know, they did the comparison in this article, of, for example, the cultural differences in Quebec, where it's not that big a, a deal. Same thing in Europe. Lots of people rent there. Yeah, yeah I think, I think that, that's, that's the case. There's lots of countries where home ownership isn't a big thing. There's people who will spend money on their rent, and instead of spending a lot on home ownership, they'll spend it on other factors that will improve their quality of their life. Again, it's not me arguing for or against having homes or not. I'm just saying that there's a lot of different ways of looking at value of life or worthwhile of life. So I'm going to go back to what I was saying. If we're going to have more multi-generational homes, that's really a typical thing anyway. We're kind of going back to what used to be the case. We didn't used to just have people have this push towards having their own independent residence, and when people got a certain age, they all went off to retirement homes, whatever. People lived with each other more, and maybe, maybe that will impact maybe the meaning and purpose that seniors have in their lives. And maybe we will develop more respect for young people towards seniors if we live more with them, spend more time with them. Maybe, so maybe there will be more of an emphasis on community and caring for each other rather than the focus on independence that currently is there. And maybe there's real well-being and psychological health associated with more community and relying on each other rather than everyone pursuing their own separate ends and having as much as they possibly can. Some may say you're dreaming, Theo. I'm not, but some may say that. <clears throat> Will the happiness that the millennials feel make up for the loss of wealth that they have or don't have? Well, again, I don't think it's an either-or, and, and I think it's not necessarily by choice. I think that, rightly or wrongly, this is the path that we've gone economically, and right. that's why we need to ask those tough questions as to why is it that <clears throat> wealth is increasing for a very small number of us dramatically and decreasing for the vast majority of us. Those are important questions to have. In the meantime, though, people are going to have to are adapting to that reality, and so what are they going to do? And now we're talking about a component called resilience. How do you respond to challenge? And so if you have resilient people, they see challenge as being something that they can learn from, grow from, that won't beat them. They see themselves having some sort of meaning and purpose in their life. And so that's how they'll end up responding to this. And one of, these, one of the ways that they may respond to this, again, is that they may start valuing these things that they can't have anymore, maybe because they can't have them, so they choose not to value them. Yeah, well, maybe it's not that important anymore. So maybe there's other things in life that are more important for us to focus on than whether or not we should have that house of ourselves. Boy, that will certainly change our view of millennials, won't it? I mean, we won't be able to say what we say now. Well, and I think a lot of things that we say now are unfair. I don't really think that when we... I mean, that's just what we've historically done for every generation. The generation before, there's a bunch of lazy people, you know, respectful and entitled, blah, 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 blah. And, you know, I don't think it's fair that we continue to do that. I think the millennials are coping with an economic situation that was created by the people who preceded them. And so uh, it's funny that we end up blaming them for their response to the situation that we've created, in a way. So... Uh, that's that's a bit of an interesting That doesn't give them an excuse to take the day off, though. At the end of the day, they still have to fix it. <laughs> Just like we fix things of our uh, parents' generation, no? Yeah, that's funny, though. Yeah, they've got to fix it. I mean, yeah. you know, we won't. But that's, you know, that's a point. I guess what I was saying is I think that when we paint a whole generation with this broad brush of a bunch of lazy, yeah. entitled, not entitled people, and that's why they're in this situation, not nonsense. They're responding the situation that they found themselves And let's in. not forget it. It's us that raised that generation. Well, well that's what I'm saying, right? Like, I, I think it's easy to just keep on, every generation dumps on the next generation and nothing really gets done that way. Like, I think millennials, by and large, are doing the best they can. I think a lot of them. I mean, my students, for crying out loud, they go to a class. I never had, like, two jobs 
<laughs> while I was in university. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I ended up being a graduate assistant while I was in university, but other than that, I didn't have to... I mean, some of my students, honestly, I don't know how they find time to go to classes or, or, or study because they are working at the same time. I think a lot of people underestimate what they're doing. There's less opportunity for them. So how, how will they respond to that? Uh, will they end up being miserable because they can't have what people had before them? Or will they do a couple things? One, maybe they'll get socially active and challenge why, why this situation is, become more active socially, environmentally, politically. That's important because if you have meaning in your life, you tend to be happier. You tend to feel like your life is worthwhile. And two, will they rise to that challenge and maybe change their values a little bit and say, you know what? So what? I won't be able to have that house, that house that my parents did. Uh, maybe I'll have something else, or maybe I'll stay longer with my parents. Maybe we'll raise these kids together. Maybe it's going to change the way we see family. Maybe we'll value each other more. Maybe that'll happen. Maybe millennials will save us. <laughs> well, someone's got to. <laughs> like, at the end of the day, it's all cyclical, is it not, Theo? I mean, it's amazing when you think about it. Well, sure. Uh, you know, like, a lot of the changes that we're encountering have been encountered by people in difficult times before. People have had a rally around. Community has had a rally around. Um, and so that's happened before. Nothing new under the sun. So when we say, oh, doom and gloom, well, for sure, we shouldn't be putting our heads in the sand and going, hey, this is totally cool. We'll just value having things left because we can't have them anymore. That's not the point. I mean, we should be challenging and asking those kind of questions. What kind of policies? What kind of who are we? Who are we electing? How involved are we in government? Who, you know, who benefits from government more than others? What's happening with us in terms of why we seem to have less opportunity? We need to be raising people that have a voice and challenge, speak truth to power kind of thing. And at the same time, though, is it necessarily important that our children always have to have more than we did? I now understand that generationally speaking. When you start off with very little, you want the next generation to have more. But maybe we've gotten to a point where we've actually got quite a lot, and it's not reasonable to expect the next generation to have more. Good point. And, uh, and again, by better off, I would assume better education, as a result, better job, and then as a result, personal wealth. I mean, it all, you know, it all fits together. Sure. Well, and uh, better education certainly helps, but at the same time, if educational costs have skyrocketed, so when you go to get that better education, you're already saddled with thirty to $40,000 in debt, and the better job opportunities aren't there to be able to pay off that. That makes it harder, so that's where we have to challenge. Say, how is this possible? How, how, how at the same time do we have this emphasis on education? At the same time as we say that, um, maybe there's less opportunities for you to be well-educated. So we have to look, look at that from a societal standpoint. What are our values? What are our government values? Where do we put our money, money and our funding? Uh, because it is harder, do we owe our kids more as a result? You know, I don't, <laughs> I don't think that we should owe more based on, you know, situation. I think who we are as parents and as people shouldn't be impacted by the situation we're in. Do we owe them more financially? I don't know. Maybe we need to help them out a little bit more. But I think it still comes down to uh, support, connection, love, caring, trying to help each other out, be there for each other. I don't think that should change depending on what generation you are or what the GDP is. Uh, there was a lot of uh, chatter made over uh, the, the Peterborough mother that spoke up uh, during Prime Minister Trudeau's uh, uh, tour of, uh, of the landscape and such talking about how she, a uh, single mother of four, trying to uh, 
bring her family up and such and yeah. uh, being crippled by Ontario uh, electricity rates and then now a cap and trade. Do you see uh, do you see a rebellion happening here? Do you see people finally realizing, wait a sec, our, our standard of living is going down here. And as a result, this may change things. It may change politics. I don't think there's any doubt about that. I think you're always going to have a tipping point. You, you just can't keep on asking more and more and more and more sacrifice from the large majority of us without, at, at some point in time, that impacting to a such degree that we don't feel capable of being able to provide shelter for our families. And it's back to an old model of psychology, you know, Maslow's hierarchy of needs. I mean, you can talk all you want about having these great things in your life and being intellectually fulfilled, but bottom line, you need food in your belly and you need a heat on your over, uh, roof over your head and you need heat in the wintertime. And when those basic requirements are now being, those basic needs are being threatened and taken away, then, of course, people are going to really get up in arms. And that's why it's really important that people like her actually speak up and say, nice tour, really great, and I appreciate your asking us to make sacrifices. But I understand you just went off on holidays over this island for a while, and you had a like, really great time. Well, I was really struggling to have the heat on. What the hell is going on with that? Mm-hmm. These are good questions to ask. How do millennials feel optimistic about the future, knowing that, well, especially with a third of them, knowing they're not going to have what their parents do? Well, I think that that's, that's, that's a really good question. You know, on one hand, it may be hard for them to be optimistic from a sort of an economic uh, look. I may not be able to be as wealthy as I would have liked to have. I may not be able to have the job that I want to have. And maybe, maybe how I respond to that will be really what makes the difference. Do I become more involved? Do I become more socially active? Do I actually use my skills, my social media skills for good, as opposed to talking about Kim Kardashian's ass? What do I do with that? You know, do I get more involved in being active? And when you're active, when you're part of a cause, when you're part of a movement, your life takes on meaning, and then you can feel optimistic about the possibility of change. But if you're passive and you feel like you're helpless and you don't get involved, then, of course, it's pretty hard for you to feel optimistic. Is this a bad thing, or is it just a pendulum swinging back? I think it's a bad thing any time that a large part of the large part of society feels excluded from the possibility of developing wealth, and I think that that's I think we're sort of basic fundamentally beliefs in inequality and equal opportunity. I think that when people get to the point where where we start suspecting that maybe we don't have that same equal opportunity, that 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 sort of a story that we've always bought into, which is like if we work really hard, if we pay our dues, work really hard, go to school, and all that sort of thing, then we can get what we. We deserve it. We've earned it. Now this idea that says, well, even if you work really hard and you do everything right, you still may not have that opportunity. And so I think that's where, where you get to the point of saying, well, maybe we need to address some social inequities. And at the same time, maybe this is also where we question some of our priorities and what we think are really valuable and important. And millennials are increasingly saying, for instance, look, maybe it doesn't really matter that I end up having my own home or that I end up having my car. Maybe what I really want to do is be able to be more fulfilled in my life. Maybe I have to make do with less. Maybe I count on other people more. Maybe we kind of rally together and be more of like a community. Maybe that's the way we're going to go as well. Less than a third of Canadian millennials say their generation will have a better life than their parents. Theo Sellis has been with us, registered family therapist, president of Integrity Works. Theo, as always, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. You're welcome. Take care, Scott. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML.